Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos. And based on this pre-chat, among other things, I am super excited for today's episode. We've got Scott Beebe from Business and Purpose. He's the founder. And we had to start rolling the podcast early because we were just getting into some really, really awesome talk about some stuff that we've been thinking a bunch internally at KCL. It's some stuff that we've been bringing onto the podcast around people, process, business valuation. A lot of the stuff that I think isn't getting discussed enough in the space, but Scott is an expert in the space, and we are really, really excited to have on the podcast. So thanks for coming on, Scott. Jan, thanks for setting all this up. It's a lot of work to do a podcast, so I'm really, really grateful you'd share it with me. Oh, thank you so much. So let's start with where you're coming from on this. So um, I know that you've been running a really successful business, but I think you're, this is one of the first legal podcasts you're coming on too. So for people who haven't heard of you, bring us up to speed on how you got to doing what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I just got off the phone with one of our clients who is a lawyer about 30, 45 minutes ago. So I'm not totally naive to the space. So just in <laughs> yeah. case anybody listening is like, they don't understand. Actually, it would be just the opposite because where I'm coming from is to talk about the business of law and not just the service of law. The service of law sort of sits as a product on top of a foundation. And that foundation is a business. And unfortunately, from what I understand in law school, they don't teach much about the actual business side of law. And so that's where we start to come in. My dad is a professional engineer. So I grew up all over the country, uh, the United States. And after living in Portland, Oregon for a while, I then finished high school starting in 10th grade in Greenville, South Carolina. So very, <laughs> a, a very polarized life um, yeah. growing up. And then uh, went to university, had a chance to play football at the University of South Carolina for four years in the mid 90s, which was a lot of fun. Then went to theology school. And so now I'm really going to start to throw you off into how I got here. So I went to theology school. I was a telemarketer while I was there working. Then I left uh, and graduated theology school with a master's there. And then I sold drugs uh, legally uh, for <laughs> Pfizer for a couple of years. And then I worked at a church. And then I planted a church and was a pastor of that. And then went back to work for Pfizer and led uh, volunteer teams to Nigeria. And then eventually uh, was the executive director of that small little organization for a couple of years. And then in February of 2015, actually March of 2015, we started Business on Purpose. So it just sort of crisscrosses everything. And uh, there is a lot of synergy if you, didn't, if you dive deep into the story. But fundamentally, that's where we're at. And currently, my wife, who she and I just celebrated 25 years this year, we've got three kids plus one because my daughter just got married. And so we sort of have four, I guess. 22, 20, and about to be 19. So we are not only 25 years marriage, married daughter that we've shipped off, but our last son has graduated. So we don't have any kids technically in the house. Although at the time of this recording, it's the break. And so a couple of them are home, which Literally, is super okay. fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, Scott. And I'll say this too. It's kind of, I grew up on the East Coast, so there wasn't a lot of religion going on. But I mean, just by working with different people across the country, I'll say this is something that ended up coming up a bunch. Whenever we're working with people in the general Utah area, there is some of the best salespeople I've ever met in my life coming <laughs> from that background, too. And I can imagine yeah. as a pastor, too. It's kind of almost, I mean, it's, it's also, I'm not to say that's selling, but you have to keep crowds entertained. And it's, it's a very much an, uh, an offers a persuasion, getting people to do the right thing, honestly. But 
I'm seeing a lot of a through line that too, which is, I always find fascinating, but um, also <laughs> a lot of organizations through the years too. So it's like, you've had the opportunity to employ a lot of the skills that you've learned across a lot of different groups of people, probably That's right. from scratch a bunch, right? Yeah, certainly. And when you're going through it, it, there is frustration to go. There's no master plan here. Like, where am I going? Right. And I was 39 years old when we started the business. So I wasn't, you know, in my twenties, I barely was in my thirties. And mm -hmm. fundamentally I was about four months away from my forties before we started this business. And so looking back now, I can see it right in terms of hindsight. I always remember Seth Godin, uh, that great author. If you've never read any of his books, they're well worth reading. And he would just talk about the power of reading and consuming knowledge, information, insight, perspective, wisdom, all of those things. And then they begin to stack. And so I can look back now and go, ah, okay, I got it. And it just propels me to learn even more. I'm learning about trapeze artists right now, by the way. Yeah. So just odd things, crazy things that start to come in. And I won't use anything about it, but I guarantee you in my talks this year, we'll travel all over the country to go speak. I guarantee I'll be talking about trapeze artists this year at some point. That's awesome. Like um, the constellation of, of different things that you add to, I think it's cool. And it also gives, you know, a reason to read widely. It's, you know, you kind of get that. That's right. Yeah, I think the word well-read is, is great for, for an example of that stuff too. But um, eclectic, I think is probably the one that's better. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about business on purpose. So, all right, let's take it back. You're starting the organization. You've got knowledge from your, your background, but how'd you start bringing that to bear in the businesses that you're working on? And let, you know, let's talk a little bit about those early days and, and what it ended up, um, what you were ending up helping people with. Yeah, so let me go a couple months before we started uh, in late 2014. I was leading a very, very small, about a half a million dollar annual organization, nonprofit, 501c3 organization doing work in Nigeria. I was based in the US, but I was back and forth all the time in Nigeria. And one of my functions was to do, you know, some sort of um, internal audit, of the organization where we had been going on now for golly, 13, 14 years at that point. So, you know, the shrub had grown, we need to trim it back a little bit and just kind of build the organization up. And so when I did that, I brought some of those reports back and a very long story that I'll, I'll save you from short over a period of a few months, I thought those stories as the international director were getting to the board because I, I, although I would attend some board meetings, I was not the chairman of the board. I wasn't even on the board technically. And turns out those reports were not getting back. And that sort of led to a little bit of a downfall with the board. These people that have been there for a very, very long time started to lose some trust. And in February 27th of 2015, Eight of the nine board members resigned that day. Wow. Uh, that morning. Uh, actually, we were in a mid-cities between Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas, a mid-cities boardroom. It started to snow, which was really bizarre. Uh, that morning, we started at nine and I left at noon with no job. So I was married, 39 years old, three kids, and no job. We joke all the time, though. My wife was a school teacher, so don't worry about us. We were rolling in <laughs> yeah. public school teacher cash. And so it was that day that I just sort of was sitting there stunned. A dear friend of mine who was actually one of those eight resigning board members took me to a place called Abuelos nearby. And we just sat down and kind of commiserated over chips and salsa before I hit the airport DFW to come back to Savannah. And so I remember flying back and Yana was just thinking the whole time, like what just happened? Like it was, I knew there was discord with some of the board and stuff. I knew all that, but like a full meltdown was just like, well, I, I was not planning on that. In fact, I had plans for the next six months, what we're going to do and all of that. And so that next Monday, I called two of my friends. One of them is actually in this building with me right now. Uh, he's the longest standing client we've had. He's still a client today, but he's also a dear, dear friend. And uh, called him. He owned a construction company, called another friend who was my old college roommate, lived in our town. He owned 
uh, owns a landscape supply company. And they kind of knew what was going on. And I told both of them, I said, hey, I'm going to start a coaching business and I want to coach both of you and I want to charge you for it. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, all right, man. And they believed in me and they you know, know some of my background and all of that. They said, well, what do you want to coach us on? And I said, honestly, guys, what do you need? And they were like, well, I don't know. And one guy, his business had been going at that point uh, for about 13 years. The other was about seven, eight years. Multi-million dollar businesses, like they're doing pretty well. 12 to 20 employees, somewhere in that range. And so it kind of, you know, substantive, right? And uh, so what I did is I, I asked both of them, I said, hey, do you know where you're going with this thing? And they're like, no, we're just trying to make money and, you know, whatever, raise kids and all that. And I said, I tell you what, I'm going to put together a full day vision, mission, values workshop. I, we're going to snapshot where this thing's going. So you've got a directive of where you're heading. And they're like, okay. Met with both of them, did that. And they both left that room separately. And they said, I've never had this level of clarity, both about my business and my life than after what we've just walked through. And honestly, it wasn't rocket science. What we walked through was just asking intentional questions on a template. And I put a little logo together on PowerPoint, which is really crummy. So then a couple of weeks later, I uh, met with one of those guys and he goes, like, what do we do now? I, I need more of this. What do we do now? And I said, I think we start to meet it every week. And he goes, all right, how much? And so I just, Jan, I just made up a number and threw it to him. And he's still a client to this day. And, um, and so now that business is now, uh, we have nine full-time W2 team members, uh, five full-time coaches, and we serve 86 business owners around, around North America. And our vision is to get to eight full-time coaches serving 120 clients around North America. That's awesome. Next year? Uh, by 2025. So June 2025 uh, will be that time. It'll be the time my, son, my middle son graduates college. So we always align our vision around something compelling that's happening in our personal life. Yeah. And so we want to be able to, uh, to get there during that time so that we have eight coaches constantly liberating owners from chaos to make time for what matters most. Okay, that's fantastic. And you know, based on this audience and people I've spoken to in the legal space, liberating owners from chaos is definitely something that a lot of them have to deal with. So, yeah, um, yeah. and I'm assuming a lot of stuff happening, uh, just kind of getting back to our pre-chat. So things start with a vision, but where the rubber meets the road a lot of the times, you told me something that resonated big time. And this is a situation we see people that are coming in to or listeners that we speak to, people that come in for other business stuff. It's like they're in a growth trajectory. Sometimes their revenues are going up, but take-homes, profits, those kind of numbers are actually going in the wrong direction. So mm -hmm. can you kind of speak to about what that might be symptomatic of and maybe get into like some of the application of getting these visions into a reality? Mm, yeah, be happy to. So there can be a thousand different things, but I'll kind of highlight on the two or the three big ones that I think could be really, really helpful. One is that for many firm owners, let's go back to the vision, they have no idea where they're going. And so they're like a, uh, they're like a balloon that you just let go of the knot, the thing's just just going and eventually it's going to run out of gas and we got what we got, right? And unfortunately, that is more the issue than not. Again, lawyers, doctors, architects, we actually had a really huge program working for architects for quite some time. My buddy Enoch Sears at the Business of Architecture still runs that program uh, for architects. Architects, doctors, and lawyers are notoriously known in the public community as being very philanthropic, like any donation-based something what are you looking for? You're looking for the doctors, lawyers, and the architects. What the community doesn't really know is typically the doctors, lawyers, and architects usually are the ones that are struggling the most to run a healthy business. They're really good promoting what they do and letting the public see what they do in terms of their brand. 
but sometimes it can be a bit of a house of cards behind the scenes. And so it's uh, it, it can be relatively patched together, even though on the outside, it looks very demure, very uh, professional, you know, because we, we venerate lawyers, right? We look at that profession. We're like, whoa, that's all right. Lawyers are lawyers. Doctors are doctors. Architects are architects. Well, when a guy like me peels back the veneer, I go, oh, it's just a business, right? It's all it is. And the product, and so we have this saying that says this, your product is not your product. So that the legal services you provide, that's not your product. Your process for providing that, that's the product that you can sell. Because I'm also a certified exit planning advisor, and I see what the public is looking to buy. They're not looking to buy another real estate attorney. They're not looking to buy another uh, personal injury attorney. What they're looking to buy is a system that delivers regular real estate services and a system that delivers regular personal injury services or family law services or whatever. That's what they want is they want the process and not the product. They can't get the product anywhere. The product of legal services is a commodity. And so when we start to see our service as the primary thing that we're going to grow the firm on, we realize that we're neglecting the process. And that's the thing that's going to generate and accelerate the most value in the firm. So that's that's one. Does that make sense, Jan? Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. It's kind of interesting. And this is something that we run into in the marketing and sales side quite often. People are sometimes worried to raise their rates because they perceive themselves to be a commodity. And again, if it's John Doe versus Jane Smith, that are doing the same thing on paper, then yeah, why wouldn't you think that's Kamani? But if Jane Smith's got the absolute, you know, baller process that's been refined over 10, 15 years, then that's substantially the same thing. It's the same reason you're going to buy an iPhone for $1,000 and you're going to buy an Android for, I don't even know, I don't buy Android, but you get the idea, right? Or Mercedes versus a Toyota, right? But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy point for differentiation. I think there's so many far-reaching consequences into a business because of that. Yeah. Well, and when we start to see, and, and, and if you wonder if you're an attorney that has commoditized your service versus attorney that is generating accelerated value as a business, here's a simple little litmus test. Do you charge by the hour or do you charge by the value? And if you're charging by the hour, there's a good indication that you're probably a commodity in your community. But if you charge based on value, then we're working to where you're selling a process and not just a service that somebody else can get down the street. Yeah. You can scale a process much more easily than you can scale time. Like, you know, people that are trapped in the situation where they're billing per hour, it's, it's a body shop, right? At the end of the yeah. day, and there's no other way to get inventory than to get more people into the business. But I think that's, that's super, super interesting. Now, when we're kind of getting into how people end up developing this process, what's kind of the start point for this? Where do you start getting people to jump off on this, Scott? Yeah. So going back to vision, it's the very first thing we have people do. If we don't have a direction where we're headed, it's irrelevant to do everything else because we're just spitting in different directions with that. So the first thing we've got to do is to articulate a vision of a detailed snapshot of the future of the business. So we've got to picture what that looks like. Now, typically, it's too long to get into, but typically we look at seven different categories when we're doing that. Uh, we want to see the term of that vision. How far out is that picture, right? Year, two years. I've already told you ours, uh, June 1, 2025. So that's a target that's out there. By that time, what I see is eight coaches serving 120 clients around North America. So I've given you a very detailed. Now, what you don't know is that our vision story is actually six pages long. So I just give you a snapshot of our vision, but then we walk around the term. We look at the family freedom aspect of our vision. Why are we building these businesses? So we can spend time with our family so we can have some freedom in what we do, right? We're not just building this so we can build a big brand and show it off to people. Nobody cares. Then the third element that we're doing is the financial. So we look at that and we're not starting with revenue because your revenue is kind of irrelevant. 
What I'm really interested in is that bottom line, what we were just talking about a minute ago, is what bottom line do you need to fund the family freedom section of what you want to do? For some lawyers, it's going to be 150 grand. For others, it can be 1.5 million. I don't care what you need. What I care is, it, is it enough to fund the family freedom? And so we look at that and go, okay, it's X number of years out. This is what my, what my family and freedom to look like. This is what I want the finances to look like to meet that desire. And so now we work down in the last four categories. Okay, what service are we offering? So we start to roll that out. So we're not just randomly going, hey, you guys do family law? Uh, yeah, 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 we can do that. Hey, do you guys do real estate closing? Sure, we can, you know, no, 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 no. This is what we do. And then we move into, this is the team that does this in order to generate this revenue to get us to the family freedom in that amount of time. And so once we have the team that does that, then we look at our ideal client and then finally the culture of what we're building and start to articulate those things out. And so we want that laid out in bullet point so that we have a detailed snapshot of the future of your business. And so once that vision is in place, now we can get to work on the process elements of those. And so I'll give you one little thing. If you've never read the book by Mike Michalowicz, Profit First, that's your first action item, is to go read that book and then do everything he says. Yeah, but Scott, Jan, what about, no, 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 stop making excuses. You're gonna run into four roadblocks when you wanna subdivide your bank accounts. The first is your own mindset. You're going to think, well, I can just do this on a spreadsheet. You won't. Stop, right? Go follow the model. We're going to subdivide your bank accounts and give you five or six different bank accounts. The second barrier you're going to run into is your bookkeeper. They're nice, they're kind, and they don't want to do extra journal entries, but you're not going to care. What you're going to ask them to do is just a couple little extra entries, no big deal. The third is your banker who wants to charge you extra fees for all those extra accounts you're going to open. And what you'll do is you'll shake their hand, say, it's been a good ride so far. I'm going to go to the bank down the street who will be happy to have my deposits. And then the fourth barrier you're going to have to jump to subdivide your bank accounts, which is a good second step for any law firm, because every dollar that comes in is not your dollar. We need to cut that thing up and put it into its different homes. The fourth hurdle to jump is your CPA. Sometimes they can be a little grumpy when it comes to doing new things. And so if you can jump those hurdles, then once you've got those bank accounts subdivided, it's going to show you what cash or fuel you have available to start heading to the vision that you've written out. That's awesome. And I'll say this as far as uh, your experience in helping people set their goals, because, you know, you mentioned 80 something clients right now. You've probably done this exercise or, you know, people at Business on Purpose have done this exercise a bunch. What do you think, you know, outside of people having not done any sort of vision exercise at all? Do you think people aim too high, too low, or the chips end up landing to work out where people end up setting a vision? Like what kind of uh, mistakes do you see or things that people might not expect about setting a vision like this for themselves? Jan, I don't think it's too high or too low. I think they don't aim at all. I think that's what it is, is it is a constant state of just looking around and going, what is the latest, loudest voice? So we call it the, hold on, I got to think it up in my head, the latest, loudest. So it's LLVD, LLVD. It's the latest, loudest voice disease. And what happens is we listen to the latest, loudest voice and somebody goes, hey, Jan, can you come over here? You're like, well, I've got, yeah, yeah, I'll come over there. Hey, Jan, can you come over here? Yeah, I'll come over here. There's a University of California, uh, Santa Barbara study that came out years ago. And it says that for every time you get interrupted from what Cal Newport calls deep work. So let's say you're deep working on something, you're building something out, you're what, whatever it might be, and you get distracted. And here's what distraction sounds like, by the way, you got to listen really closely. <laughs> That's it. A phone buzz. You, whoop, you're distracted. This study says it takes 23 minutes to get back to the level of intensity that you were at working on that task once you got distracted. So think about this. 
You get to work at 7.30. You're eager beaver, right? You're getting to work at 7.30. 7.38. It's going to take you 23 minutes. All right, now it's 8 o'clock. 8.30. 9. 9.30. And then we leave at 5, 4, 6. And we say things like this in the car. I don't feel like I got anything done today. Yeah, because you didn't. You were distracted all day. You thought you got a lot of work done. But the reality is you didn't get a lot of work done because you were responding to the latest, loudest voice disease. So I don't think it's shooting too high. I don't think it's shooting too low. I think it's not aiming at all or aiming haphazardly with no direction. I think that's where a lot of people fall short. In fact, I think it's where the majority of people fall short. And if you go into the exit planning side of my brain, what we do, this is really interesting statistics. 20 to 30% of the businesses who actually put a for sale sign in the yard say, hey, we're, we are for sale as a business. Only 20 to 30% of those actually sell. So 70 to 80% of the businesses that have a for sale sign in the front yard do not sell. Why? Three out of every four that don't sell, it's because you, Jan, got cold feet and you didn't know what you were going to do after the sell. Why? It's because you didn't have a vision written down. That is the number one reason businesses don't sell. It's not because of the buyer or the market. It's because of you and you don't have a vision for what you're going to do after you sell the business and the business has been your identity for all these years. That's crazy. There's a lot of aspects of this too. And this is something that's been very interesting journey for us on the marketing side of things because people will get in the way of a goal that they say that they want on paper. (laughs) But when the rubber meets the road, they're not really down to see what happens or they're scared of the outcome. And it's like, yeah. I think among other things, what a vision statement will help people do is is give them comfort in having a next step because we don't like voids. Like our brains don't like having to deal with that. So the easiest way to do is just let these distractions fill in whatever you're doing so you you don't have to make a decision. It's just having this news in your life. (laughs) We feel busy. And so we say this, we've got a saying that email is from the devil. Uh, (laughs) We really do believe that. And here's why. Email was never created to be what it has become. Email was created to take a large digital package and send it from me to you. That's it. Just like our mail system. But what we're using it as now is a direct messaging tool, which it was never designed to be. And most importantly, and most detrimentally, we use it as a to-do list. And so we keep these things up here. And every time we look, the to-do list has changed because new stuff has come in. And guess what we're responding to? The latest, loudest voice. And so we go from distraction to distraction, and we do it psychologically because we feel like the superhero. When I respond to that email and click delete, I did something. And so I have my superhero cape on. Look at all the different things I accomplished. And uh, I actually have, it's going to sound like a book promotion. Feel free to go get my book. Uh, We don't make any money off my book by the time you sell them and do all that stuff. But the title of my book is called Let Your Business Burn. Why? It's because most owners and most firm owners all day spend their day putting out little fires that if they would have just let those fires burn, they would have put themselves out. And you could have done the real hard work of working on the business instead of constantly putting out fires in the business and spinning plates and dropping them all day. Yeah, that's a fantastic business title. I got to say, as someone personally, firsthand experience, installing a middle management layer in case of my business over the last couple of years, it is a scary thing to do sometimes. Very. And I mean, it's scary on the management level. It's even scarier when you have, when you're managing managers because like, you know, the, the, the expenses, uh, sorry, the, uh, the mistakes become more expensive, like the higher up you go. But yeah. let's talk about that a little bit more. So as far as getting people to implement stuff and also just, you know, talking about these situations for, for people that haven't gone through this or these like are saying, Scott, that's insane. Like, why would I just let things burn in my business? I'm going to get disbarred. Like what happens when we let, a fire, a little fire burn. Yeah. 
So there's a couple things. And I think probably the biggest element of what happens when you start to let somebody burn is you allow somebody else to come solve it. Yeah, that thing might need to be put out, but you allow somebody else to come solve it. You need to stop being the superhero in your business. And again, let me put my exit planning hat on. If you're putting your business up for sale, and many of you, that's your retirement plan, is to sell your business or at least take chips off the table in a partial sale or whatever. I, as the private buyer, have no interest in buying a business where you're the superhero. I want to buy a business that runs without you. I don't want to buy a business that runs because of you. And so we want to get firm owners to the point where they're working in the firm because they want to and not because they have to. And so when you allow little fires to burn, and then you have a methodology throughout the year to evaluate that, I'll give you an example of that here in just a minute, then all of a sudden other people get to elevate and step up and lean into what their giftedness is. But when you spend all your time being the superhero, then you're going to maintain a lower level for everybody else because they never get a shot to grow. And so it's actually very, very, it's, it's doubly detrimental because we falsely inflate ourselves and we proactively deflate everybody else when we do it. So let me give you a quick example, Jan, of a feedback loop that can be helpful to make sure those fires are managed. So just this past week, we work with a lot of construction clients. And so we get a lot of verbiage like factoring and retainage and all these fancy words that people use in accounting and everything else. And so we know a lot about this term retainage and uh, legal firms may not know a lot about that, but basically retainage is a term that when construction workers are, are working in commercial, that the commercial developer will withhold or retain 10% of the final payable out to the actual construction company just to make sure all the punch work's done and everything's done before they give them their final 10%. So it's called retainage. We did not know that there was a difference between retainage receivables and retainage payables. And so there's a downstream from the owner that's the receivable. And then there's a downstream from our client to their subcontractors, which is a payable. We didn't know that. Not a big deal. And so I could have either learned that because of the room that I was in. Okay, I was able to put out that fire, but our other teammates are going to have that fire come up. So how do we ensure they're elevated to be able to put that out? So we have a coaches meeting every Monday at four o'clock. It's non-negotiable. We do it 50 times a year. So next week, we're off for the holidays at the time of this recording. And in the middle of the year around July 4th, we're off. But the other 50 times a year, we meet for one hour from four to five o'clock. And what we do is we bring up all the things from the week prior that we saw, these little fires that started burning. We put them on the agenda. And that's what we spend our hour rotating around as coaches to go, hey, I heard this. And either I don't know what this is. Can you help me? Or I heard this. I did some research. And here's what I found out. So we can all be equipped with what to do it. So we've got to have a mechanism that's repetitive, predictable, and meaningful to be able to have a platform to talk about those fires, but not necessarily solving them for that one firm owner or the three principles or whatever are there, but allowing other people to grow into that so that they can begin to solve that problem for themselves. Okay, I want to dig into that a little bit too. So I think repeatable and predictable are words I hear a lot in business. Meaningful is one that I don't think I hear enough. So what's the if I can, <laughs> I was going to say, what's the meaning? That's not good. But what made you add that to the model? And what's important about getting that into things that people are talking about? I mean, is, you know, the devil's advocate shouldn't just knowing that it's a problem be enough? Or how does meaning change the equation? Yeah, no, that's great. We've got another statement that says this, life and business necessarily intersect. So think about this. Something happens at work. It's going to follow you home. Like we're not robots. We're human beings. I'm in a situation right now where I walked into a meeting yesterday and a very strong, capable vice president of a company just starts crying. They're like, what's happening? What's going on? 
Turns out they're going through a really, really, really tough home situation. Really tough. Well, I could be cold and robotic and go, hey man, no crying here. This is business, right? We're talking about business. Keep that at home. That's inhumane. Like it's totally inhumane to, to think about that and vice versa. It's hard for us to have something happen to business and go home and not talk about it or whatever. Now, of course, we need to modulate those things. That's not what I'm talking about. We need to modulate that. We are human beings. We have emotions. We have thoughts. We have inflections. We have variations. We have all of those things. And those things are meaningful. Sometimes they're meaningful in a negative way. Sometimes they're meaningful in a positive way. But if all we do is think our things on repeat, all we do are things that are predictable, but we void the meaning, then what's the point? Why are we doing these things? Flip side, if all we do are things that are meaningful, oh, Jan, man, how are you? Hey, Jan, how are you? And every time I show up and I say, hey, Jan, how are you? And you're like, hey, man, he does that every time, but I can tell he doesn't care. He's just going through the motion. I'm saying, no, man, I'm being meaningful. And so there's got to be substance behind what we're doing so that I can see Jan the person and not just Jan, the guy who owns a law, you know, this law firm growth podcast and does all this stuff. Like, I don't care about you. The, the fact is that in this situation, putting on a podcast takes a lot of work. There's a lot of effort. There's a lot of back-end stuff that nobody that's listening to this sees. And I have empathy for you for that, which causes me gratitude that you would share this stage with me. That's meaningful. Whereas the other, the flip side of this is I show up, I'm entitled to this. And I go, hey, Jan, what, I mean, what are, what are we here? 20 minutes? Like, go. Like, let's get this thing done, right? Well, we did it. It was on repeat. It was predictable in what we did, but there was no meaning to it. And so we've got to bring the human element into it, which also means for us that it's never going to be 100%. We are broken. We are flawed. And we're always going to have brokenness. But that does not mitigate the opportunity for us to create great, repetitive, predictable process. Right. That's a fantastic answer. <laughs> and as no, far as yeah, like going after like what we're, we're having, so we have these things to talk about. And this is another thing that came that was really, really, I, I wanted to make a note of in our pre-chat, but what do we have in the situation is we're talking about awesome stuff every single meeting. And then, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, the problem that you are, and we go, Hey, what the heck, you know, did we talk about something that kind of like this six months ago, whatever happened to that? How are we making sure that people are implementing what it is that we're talking about on these meetings and, and taking action on stuff? I guess the gap between process and an outcome. Okay. All right. So I'm going to talk about a tool that we have. Now, this is ultra proprietary. It's on a really expensive piece of software called a spreadsheet. All right. <laughs> so I, want you to, I just want you to think about a spreadsheet. We call it a culture calendar. You can call it whatever you want. But on a spreadsheet, what we do is we take the weeks of the year, not the days of the year, but the weeks of the year. So next year, January, in 2024, at the time of this recording, I know you're not supposed to put a date on this, but it'll help uh, what we talk about. January 1's on a Monday. So the week of the year, first week is 1-1. One, one. Second week, 1-8. Third week, and, and so on, all the way down. And then, so that's the, uh, that is the horizontal axis at top. Then on the vertical axis on the left-hand side of our really, really, really expensive piece of software called a spreadsheet, we're going to take all those things, Jan, that you want to remember to do. Technical training, remembering people's birthdays, following up on whatever, right? The big repetitive things that we want to make sure that we get done. I'll, I'll give you some examples that are on ours. Team meetings, check-ins, performance evaluation, annual team day that happens in June for us every year twice annual team dinner with spouses, 12-week plans that happens every quarter. Like all of these things, we need to be the ingredients of great culture for our business, which by the way, we create culture. If I don't create my own culture, then I let you create it for me. So culture is going to be created. Culture is a science term, by the way, not a business term. So we ripped it off from science. That old Petri dish, whatever ingredients you put in the Petri dish, that's what grows out. So if you don't like your culture in your firm, 
look in the mirror. Please don't be offended, but look in the mirror. You're the one that planted it or didn't and then allowed me to plant for you and you don't like what I planted for you. And so the way the culture calendar works, dates on the top, ingredients that you want embedded into the business down the left-hand side. And then every week you have a quarterback. You have one person that their single point of accountability is to pull that culture calendar up in your weekly team meeting that lasts for one hour, has an agenda, has one leader. And you pull it up, you go over to the week of the year and go, okay, it's second week of next year. So here's one eight. Let's look down our list and see what we've got notched down there for the thing we need to remember to do. Because otherwise we come up with all these great ideas and they just go out, we light them on fire for a little bit and then they just burn out. Those are the fires we don't want to burn out. There are some we want to put out and others we need to keep going because they stoke the culture of what we're trying to build. Yeah. So a lot of this comes down to makes like, you know, making sure these like the process kind of reinforces stuff. And this kind of gets into the last thing that I had written down. And this is going to be shifting over to the the exit side of things. And just mm-hmm. for a little bit of context, uh, we've had a lot of discussions on the podcast recently about the coming PE wave, just with stuff that's been changing in states like Arizona, Washington, DC, non-firm ownership is, is giving the opportunity for law firms to potentially sell to non-lawyers or get investment from non-lawyers for the first time in the history of the industry. So with people potentially looking at exits, I think it's, it's, it's on a lot of people's minds coming down the pike in a lot of the five or 10 years. But if somebody's trying to gear up for a huge exit, um, one of the notes I had was 80% of the value is in the intangibles. And I feel like mm. this is the kind of thing that works into that. So can we talk about that a little bit more? So here's the scarier number. It's another 80%. 80% of a law firm owner's net worth is in their firm. So I think about that. If I was a financial advisor and I said, hey, Jan, I want you to take 80% of your net worth and buy one stock. Would you do it? Heck no, I wouldn't do that. And yet of the firm owners that are listening to this, statistically, 80% of their net worth is locked in the firm and they can't get it out. And so you look at that and then go, okay, well, where is the majority of the value of that that one asset? It's in those intangibles. And we break it down this way in four major intangibles. It's broken down. The four intangibles are purpose, vision, mission, values, making sure those are repetitive, predictable, and meaningful. Purpose, people, org charts, job roles, check-ins, performance reviews, and and all that. The third is process, an actual documented, captured, written process put into what we call a master process roadmap. So I can see the whole business on one sheet of paper. And then the final one is usually profit. That's how we coach our clients. But based on the end, that's tangible. The intangible side of that is perception. So purpose, people, process, and perception. If those things aren't expressly written, documented and proactively trained repetitively, predictably, and meaningfully, then the value of your firm plummets in that 80% and 80% of your net worth goes down with it. And so you might ask and go, well, how do I accelerate the value of my firm? Like, how do I get that thing up so that 80% of my net worth increases? So I'll tell you what valuation specialists are looking for and what we're looking for in the exit planning process and how to value your business. Most firm owners have already heard about EBITDA and they've heard about multiples. Yes, that is a calculation that we look at, obviously. What we want, though, is a recast EBITDA because I know some of you firm owners are running cars through the business and you might have a son that, quote, works for the business but never happens to show up, but gets a paycheck. All those, we need to add that back and adjust that, right? You can still do it, but you need to add it back and adjust it for purposes of the sale. It actually usually helps because you get your higher net income number. So we want to take that recast EBITDA and multiply it by an industry multiple. And you're like, oh yeah, 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 I've seen multiples from one to four. We would definitely get a four. Well, easy there. Hold on. You don't get to decide that. I, as the buyer, get to decide what your multiple is going to be. It's a lot like real estate. Is your house will sell? Oh, my house will sell for $500,000. No, your house will sell for what a person pays for it. And that's what our business will sell for as well. 
And so we'll take that recasted EBITDA and we'll put it by a multiple and that'll be fundamentally your valuation. Now, the question then becomes, how do I get that multiple up? And so we've already decided how to get the EBITDA up. It's by good people, purpose, process, and then perception. Well, we get the multiple up the same way in those intangibles and we do it by three scores. We look at a business readiness score. And so it's a whole list of items that we walk through on a template to go, hey, how ready is your business from zero to 100%? We've got a common sense scoring model that we work. Then it's a business attractiveness score to see how attractive the business is to an outside buyer if it's a non-employee buying the business. And then the third is a personal readiness score. And go back to that statement I made earlier, because the majority of business owners don't sell because they get cold feet. And so we need to make sure that you've got personal plans, financial plans, and all of that in place before you do it. So I think it's helpful, Jan, to understand the scope of what an exit planner is looking for before they take you to a broker, an investment banker, or an M&A advisor. They've got to be able to find those things so that we can increase the value of that massive asset, which many of you consider to be one of your own children that's named your business. Yeah. Well, it kind of goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, like as far as differentiation, right? It's like all these different things. It's like there's this old Charlie Munger quote that I always stuck with me. And he was basically talking about like, you know, who always wins? What's what's a game that there's but one person only wins? And he said the best game that people always win at the auction always win. The auctioneer always wins the auction, right? So the more unique, you know, if we're trying to sell a Picasso that has, you know, there's one of these and we're trying to sell the Mona Lisa, there's no list to the price. So, but again, if something is just, you know, if you're another law firm that doesn't have their ish together, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that gets pulled down at the end of the day. It's yeah. like, you know, the, uh, it's the need versus the greed and negotiation, right? So that's good. That's really good. Reason. Yeah. But, um, Scott, this has been an awesome conversation, man. And like, you know, we were talking a little bit on the pre-call about some potential next steps for people that are, are liking what they're hearing. So what would be the next best step for somebody who's liking some of this stuff and wants to take the next step? Yeah. So we try to make it really, really easy. One of the things we want firm owners to be able to do is to objectively evaluate the back-end health of their firm, all those intangibles. And so what we did is we built, uh, we spent a couple of years building this, and it's really a cool little tool. If you go to mybusinessonpurpose.com forward slash healthy, so mybusinessonpurpose.com, that's our website, forward slash healthy, then what you can do is take this assessment. I actually recommend you have multiple people in the firm take the assessment so you can compare scores. Because sometimes we firm owners tend to value their business based on what's called an emotional value. I think it's worth a lot more than it probably really is worth, right? And other people can give us some counteraction to what we see and give us some perspective on that. So you, if you've got other firm owners, definitely have them take it. But if you've got teammates that let them take it as well, especially the trusted key leaders, let them take it. You guys compare value. So go to mybusinessonpurpose.com forward slash healthy. And that is a great first step to help give you a diagnosis of where you sit on the back end intangible health of the business, whether you're just driving towards a vision or three years, five years, eight years, 10 years out, you're looking to transition the firm. Oh, that's fantastic. And thanks for offering that, Scott. I think that's going to be super yeah. valuable. This has been an awesome conversation. I can't say it enough. I probably said awesome five times in the last five minutes, but <laughs> I like your vibe, Scott. I think it's been a really, really good conversation. Uh, it made it very, very easy to host this one. So thanks again for coming on. For everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.